6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Titus. Well, we're going to explore the epistle to Titus. Titus was known as Paul's troubleshooter, and if you know anything about my background, you can understand why this is a special epistle to me, because I spent 30 years in the corporate world as a troubleshooter for the banks, primarily for Chase Manhattan and also First Interstate in California, uh, rescuing uh, high-technology companies that were in trouble. And, uh, and uh, that was, I stumbled on a couple of successes, and you do a couple of those in a row, they think you did it on purpose. So we were, you see, high-technology, standard companies that run and get into trouble, banks have a bevy of consultants they use to come in, restructure the debt, hire the professionals, and move on. But uh, if you have a high-tech company in trouble, uh, it has no balance sheet. They're, the assets are intellectual properties or primarily people that go home at 5 o'clock. So you can't restructure the company from a balance sheet point of view. You have to really deal with the operating statement. So, and uh, in a high-tech company, there, are, there weren't troubleshooters around, so I was a one-eyed man in the land of the blind. So we did a few that were high-profile ones and established ourselves, strangely, by the grace of God. And that's what we did for about 30 years. So being a troubleshooter is a, a calling that's... Uh, rather distinctive, rather unique. For us, it was uh, an exciting time. But uh, Paul had his troubleshooter by the name of Titus, and we're going to explore that. Now, in the New Testament, of course, there, the, there are 13 epistles uh, by Paul, uh, eight what they call general epistles or Hebrew Christian epistles. And, uh, but among the, uh, the, uh, these epistles, the two, the two cornerstone ones, of course, are Romans and Hebrews, and major doctrinal epistles. There are seven churches that Paul wrote letters to, but then he wrote, and three of those, of course, are called the prison epistles because he wrote them while he was in confinement. But the, there are three, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, that are known as the pastoral epistles. Paul wrote them to his protégés, really, his, uh, especially these two young guys, Timothy and uh, Titus. And uh, so uh, we're going to explore that. Let's get this a little bit in perspective in terms of Paul's life. Uh, you remember, we first see him when he was holding the coats while Stephen was getting stoned. But then he was converted from a zealot attacking the early Christians. Uh, he was converted on the road to Damascus. And uh, then he spent about uh, three years in the Arabian Desert. At least some time of the next three years, returned to, to Damascus. But he, by then, had to be slipped out of town in a basket. He then spends 10 years in his hometown, Tarsus, where he was raised. And uh, it isn't until Barnabas calls him into action, brings him to Antioch, which was emerging as the, the Gentile capital for operations there in the, in the eastern Mediterranean. That then leads to his first missionary journey. And uh, uh, when he comes back from that, there's the famous council in Jerusalem that brings you to about Acts 15. And then there's a mission, second missionary journey after that. And that's when Timothy joins Paul. And then there's a third missionary journey. And he gets arrested then in Judea. About, we're now about 58 A.D., He's in prison. The Romans really had to rescue him by, to save his life, really. But anyway, he was in prison in Caesarea for several years. He finally resorts to an appeal to Caesar. And uh, on the way to Rome, he shipwrecked. That 
closes the book of Acts pretty much, uh, Acts 27. And uh, he's on Malta there for three months, and then uh, he's in Rome in house arrest. And that brings you to about Acts 28. And uh, this is about where the book of Acts breaks off um, during this uh, imprisonment in Rome. This is where he wrote while in house arrest. He wrote the so-called prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. He's acquitted of the charges and released. And that's when he wrote 1 Timothy and also Titus. So we'll see a lot of similarities between 1 Timothy and Titus, because he apparently did write them under similar conditions at the same time to two of his favorite protégés. He's arrested subsequently and put in a dungeon. He knows this is final. And uh, he wrote 2 Timothy, uh, apparently his last letter, uh, then. So Titus is the one we're going to explore with this sort of perspective. And uh, while Timothy was laboring in metropolitan Ephesus, Titus was on the island of Crete, not an easy place to minister for lots of reasons. Now, Titus was a Gentile, a Greek believer, and he too had been won to Christ by Paul, and uh, he served Paul on many special assignments in Corinth. We see that all through the second letter of Corinth. In fact, Paul writes there, he says, as for Titus, he is my partner and my fellow worker among you. That's high praise from Paul. He had many that would be with him for a while, but then fall away. But here's, this guy was really his partner. And uh, so many are fellow workers, but few really are partners. The term really implies a fiduciary. That's where the word koinonia comes from, incidentally. And we're going to talk a little bit uh, in this study about what we mean by fiduciaries. The island of Crete, not an easy place to work. There was a great deal of mythology and tradition on the Greek island. According to tradition, Minos was a source of their laws, he conquered the Aegean pirates who were there and established a navy. After the Trojan War, the principal cities of the island formed themselves into several independent little republics, including Knossos, Sidonia, and Cortina. And there were apparently churches in all of these places. Crete was annexed to the Roman Empire about 67 BC. So Paul had assigned Titus to set things in order there. The Jews from Crete were present at the Shavuot, that is uh, the Feast of Pentecost, which we see in Acts chapter 2. And these may have been the core group of Jews that uh, returned to their land to form these churches. And this letter is a condensed version, in effect, of uh, first letter to Timothy written about uh, 64 to 67 AD. And he's going to emphasize a term we hear a lot about, uh, the blessed hope. That term comes specifically from this letter. What is the blessed hope? Why is it blessed? We'll talk about that. And so Titus is Paul's troubleshooter, one of his most trusted workers. He accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their difficult visit to the Jerusalem Council. That's a very, Acts 15 is a very, very critical passage to understand. And Paul, of course, comments on it in Galatians 2. But he sent Titus on a special diplomatic mission to Corinth and took a very severely worded letter to Corinth attacking their unruliness. And he was given instructions to enforce uh, at uh, uh, Corinth. But upon meeting Paul in Macedonia, which had been much had been accomplished, Paul was very apprehensive that that was taken right. Fortunately, it was. And uh, Paul so leaves him anyway in authority in Crete. And that's the context of this letter. So Titus, you might say this is about maintaining good works. First chapter is really written to the elders in the assembly there to put things in order. Second uh, chapter of Titus really shifts more to the classes in particular to adorn the doctrine, and then the final book to the members in general to maintain good works. That's one way of looking at the three uh, chapters. Chapter 1, all things to be set in order. Chapter 2, 
Focus on sound doctrine. And chapter 3, one, to perform good works. Accomplish them. Be a doer, not a hearer only. So let's take a look at chapter 1. Paul reminded Titus in chapter 1 of three responsibilities he had as the elder in charge. Number one, preach God's word. Number two, ordain qualified leaders. That he was to raise up leadership. And three, silence the false teachers. So those are the three main uh, charges that Titus was to execute. One that we all can take into heart, especially with small groups. There's so much emphasis now. So many people are discovering the power of meeting in small groups during the week. And one of the weaknesses of small group activities, many positives, one of the weaknesses, the need to raise up new leadership. So Titus is a very appropriate letter to, for all of us, especially those that are involved in small groups, to not only preach the word, but to raise up leadership and also deal with the false teachers that will, will inevitably surface. Preach God's word. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. Paul uses a phrase, and John also used it in Revelation, called the doulos. A doulos of God, a bond slave. Not just a slave, a bond slave was one who voluntarily committed himself to a house, to a family, um, for the rest of his life. He didn't just serve seven years or whatever. It, didn't do, it wasn't just a period of servitude. It was a lifetime commitment of service. And so Paul and John both use that term of themselves, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And so uh, he also refers to his authority as an apostle, as something he feels comfortable doing when he's writing to the Gentiles. Uh, when he's writing to the Jews, he doesn't do that because he regards Jesus Christ as an apostle. But, uh, and according to. Now we have this according to the faith of God's elect in this. We'll find that there are four according to's in this letter. It's, it's all built from a, a Greek, uh, a, a very key Greek preposition, kata. And according to the faith of God's elect is the first of these four. The second one is the truth, which is according to godliness, in effect. There are two of them really buried here in this stru Greek structure. God's elect are those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Have you trusted Jesus Christ? If you are, then, then you are justified by faith. You're, you are saved. You are guaranteed by that commitment to Christ into heaven. So there, you're one of God's elect. Some of the people in Crete professed to be saved, but their lives seem to deny that profession, and he's going to deal with that in this letter. They were abusing the grace of God. Do, do we know any of these? We know them all over. That's one of the great tragedies of the Christian perspective is that so many people see uh, uh, very poor behavior on those that call themselves Christian. The second according to is truth will lead to godliness. If it doesn't, it isn't truth. Faith in Jesus is not only bringeth, that's the past tense, it saves us today and makes our lives godly. We call that sanctification. And it also gives us hope for fu the future, future glorification. So there's three tenses to this too. Verse two, in the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. You know, there's several things God can't do. Do you know that? He cannot lie. And uh, did you know there's something you can do that God can't? This is a little quiz for your weekly Bible group when you meet. What can you do that God can't do? You can see an equal. God can't see an equal. I'm sure he doesn't grieve over that, but I just, it's a, 
It's something he, you can do that he can't. I get that from Javern and McGee, by the way. Promised before the world began. That's exactly what Ephesians 1.4 says. When did God first start dealing with you? Before the foundation of the world. Staggering thing to realize. God was dealing with you in his mind before the world was founded. But anyway, continuing. But hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of our God, our Savior. Preaching, kerygma in the Greek, it's a herald or trumpet. It's a, it, the term really means proclamation. According to the commandment of our God. Here's the third according to's. God reveals his message through preaching. And this was given by God, not by men. If you're called to that, you're called by him, not by man. The word God our Savior is a frequent term in Titus. Because a Savior is what sinners need. And that's what Titus is responding to. We're going to Paul's having him respond to. To Titus, mine own son after the common faith. What a warm greeting. To mine own son after common faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. After the common faith, having all things in common, this faith is a possession of all God's people. Different labels, the same faith. That's the idea that lies behind this. There are four according to, according to God's faith of elect, the truth which according to godliness, according to the commandment of God, not self-appointed, and after a common faith. And as you review these four elements, and all three of the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, you can recognize how Paul related everything in his ministry to what? What did he relate it to? The Word of God. It's astonishing how many churches today are adrift because they're not putting that, that's not their anchor, they're not their, that's not their primary frame of reference. They fall in the trap of traditions and other things. No, the Word of God is the key to the whole thing, and it sounds so glib, like such a platitude, but it's the key to the whole thing. Paul reminded Titus of three responsibilities he had to fill. Preach God's Word, ordain qualified leaders, silence false teachers. So let's take a look at the second one, ordaining qualified leaders. And this is very similar to the instructions and injunctions we had in 1 Timothy. He says, For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. The word there for bishop is episkopos. And there's another term you'll encounter in the texts often called, uh, uh, that's an elder, a presbyteros. Now, both those terms have come to mean something very specific in today's church. But in the original Greek, one is an overseer, one is an elder. They're virtually synonyms as the way they're used in the Bible, obviously not the way we use them so much in our common use. It, it implies a mature person, both physically and spiritually. These are not young people. They're typically older, mature, but certainly spiritually mature, and they both imply, in some sense, an overseer, a, a steward of God. A steward does not own. He manages all that his master has put on his hands. He is a fiduciary. He puts his master's interests ahead of his own. That's what the word fiduciary really means. And there's a biblical example of that, and that's Joseph. Probably one of the classic examples in the Bible. He had complete control over Potiphar's business. And uh, Genesis 39 on and on. The most important characteristic of a steward is what? Faithfulness. Exactly. An elder must never say, this is mine. All that he has comes from whom? God. And all Christians ought to be faithful stewards. And we're not talking just about pastors here. Every Christian is a steward. 
of the opportunities God has given him. And the primary requirement is faithfulness. Not self-willed, the text says. That's obviously not overbearing. There's no room for arrogance here. It's very disturbing to discover how many very prominent people in the Christian world are characterized by arrogance. And uh, uh, it's, 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 there's no room for that. Not soon angry, not touchy, not having a quick temper. There is a righteous anger against sin, but that's usually not our problem. Most of our problem is, is us. I like uh, one of the writers says, temper is such a wonderful thing that it's a shame to lose it. <laughs> Paul continues in Titus 1.8, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. A lover of good men. What, and, and speaking of good here in the sense of books, music, causes, so forth. People that are, are, are in that, that, that's what he loves. A just, upright. Man of integrity. What do you mean by that? He sticks by his word and practices what he preaches. And I love my wife's de definition for truth. That's when the word and the deed are one. And uh, he's to be holy, unstained. 1 Peter 1.16, Be ye holy, for I am holy, is the instruction. And the, the whole idea of holy, really, the root meaning of the word holy is different, set aside, separate. Different, different from the lost because we are now new creations by the grace of God. And tempered again hits the self-controlled, disciplined aspect of it. And uh, so temperance and self-control are, for our purposes, practically synonyms. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Holding fast the faithful word. Why is God so faithful? Because it's, he cannot lie. So Paul now, in addition to the idea of building up the healthy doctrine, he now turns to the need to refute the false teachers, teachers who spread unhealthy doctrine. That's the, that's the next part of this, silencing the false teachers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. Interesting. Paul's indicting specifically those that are his brothers, Jews. Titus is faced with the same kinds of false teachers that Timothy faced and, and, and that Paul deals with in the first letter to Timothy. They typically are a mixture of legalism and man-made traditions and mysticism, especially today. It's interesting how the Christian church seems to waffle between legalism on the one hand and mysticism on the other. As we go back to icons and we go back to some of the practices of the medieval period, which was a time that the Word of God was unavailable to the people. We live in a day when the Word of God is more available than it's ever been in the history of man. And it's strange that so many churches are, are drifting deliberately away from just their, their root anchor, the Word of God itself. Unruly, rebellious, self-appointed, without authority, vain talkers. They're impressive, but vapid, hot air, vapid, empty, uh, hot air. Whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things they ought not for filthy lucre's sake, for money. You know, the great tragedy of this is that is this deceives people. How many people today are deceived in their perspective of Christianity by what they see on television and what they see in the behavior of the what I'll call the, 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 the average common carnal Christian? Interesting, uh, they subvert whole houses, 
See, house meetings, home meetings were the norm in those days. We forget that. Watch out for strange doctrines from strangers, for money motives. It's astonishing to realize how many of these TV evangelists are wearing Rolex watches, $12,000 wristwatches. What for? What for? What point are they making? One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. <laughs> Paul's quoting one of the own, his own uh, poets, Epimenes, born in Crete several centuries earlier. There was a Greek word, kretizen, which means to speak like a Cretan, which was synonymous with being a liar. To be a Cretan was a way of calling a person a liar. It was linked up that way. And... Uh, we have sort of a similar thing when we think of fornication in California. Now, when I teach First and Second Corinthians, I call it First and Second Californians. Yeah. Well, in Crete, that lying was, was an identity they unfortunately apparently had earned. Another poet wrote, quote, Crete with a hundred cities doth maintain and cannot deny this, though to lying given. These are just idioms of the literature that highlight at least the, uh, the reputation of those that lived in Crete. And notice the adjectives here. It says they're not just beasts, they're evil beasts. They're not just gluttons, they're lazy gluttons. The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. Pretty, pretty tough turf. Then uh, Paul continues, this witness is true. Wherefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The Jude says a similar thing in his epistle, contend for the faith. Priscilla and Aquila, you may, you may remember, corrected Apollos in Acts 18 because they hadn't been taught completely. So we should always pursue sound teaching. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. See, the teaching of legalism has two phases, that you are saved by the law and that you are to live by the law. Both are false. Both are false. And we find that all through our communities. Legalism. It's missing the point. Laws are for a nation. Christians are saved and are to live by, not the law, but by grace. We should be lived, walking by the Spirit, not the laws. Uh, unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. And even their mind and conscience is defiled. So we're looking for more than money motives. Minds and consciences. It's not just the money issue. Minds and consciences are defiled. And this is one of the most misapplied verses in the New Testament, to defend ungodly practices. Paul was refuting false teaching of legalists with reference to the dietary laws, not to apply this. This is a widely misapplied verse, that to the pure, all things are pure. By the way, refusing forbidden food does not make you holier. Think about that. And of course, obviously, pornography cannot be justified. It's in the eye of the beholder. Well, Yes, it sure is. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. That's a disturbing word. The same word Paul uses in the last verse of 1 Corinthians 9. They profess they know God, but in works they deny him being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. The word abominable, of course, means detestable, disgusting. Disobedient means they cannot and will not be persuaded. It's a disbelief issue. The word reprobate, though, 
is not able to pass the test, is what it means. And that's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9.27, castaway. Paul was terrified after being, even though he may preach to others, that he himself might be a castaway. He's not talking about his salvation. He's talking about his inheritance before the king. What was Titus to do? Not stand by quietly. How easy that is for us just to avoid confrontation. What was he to do? He was to exhort and to convince by means of sound doctrine. He was to stop their mouths, rebuke them sharply. And Paul would give the same advice to Timothy in his final letter. Rebuke, re, uh, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. That's in his last letter in 2 Timothy 4. What do we mean by sound doctrine? Doctrine is the difference between life and death eternally. Doctrine is not a peripheral issue. It's a central issue. You can choose what you believe, but you cannot change the consequences of what you believe. And that sound doctrine issue now brings us to the chapter on sound doctrine, which is chapter 2 in Titus. Remember, first thing, all things set in order. Second, sound doctrine. And the final be one on works. But one, one last thing. This was a sign that's reported to be in front of a modern church. No old-fashioned constraints here. Home of the 7% tithe. Only seven commandments, your choice. 15-minute sermons. All you ever wanted and less. <laughs> so enough of that. Okay. Let's get, let's get back to chapter 2 of Titus. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. And I'm reminded that those who were added to the church in Acts, chapter 2... Quote, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And that clearly describes a house church, by the way. The elders whom Titus was to ordain were to be able to do two things. To exhort and to refute or confute the heretics. The word heretic, by the way, means someone who causes division. Interesting. That's what the, the, the word means. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Titus. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.